Welcome, everyone. Ooh. We, we made an executive decision to close the, the curtains only because it's so hard to see with the beautiful glare. And I wanted you to be able to see Susan Ball as she reads to us. Um, you know that this is our last narrative medicine round for the academic year. We will resume in September. I'm not going to run down the list of people because we're still kind of figuring out who does what month. But be assured that there will be poets and novelists and photographers, um, 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 both from, uh, including some from healthcare who also have lives as artists. Um, so you will just have to stay tuned to our website and our various bulletins to know who will be speaking in September. It is my great good fortune to introduce our speaker today. Many of you know Susan Ball. Um, Susan is an internist, she's at Cornell. She's been working in the um, AIDS HIV unit for decades. Uh, we know her because she was an internist here. She was my neighbor in the AIDS clinic for a number of years before she specialized in care of um, people living with HIV and AIDS. Um, she took our master's degree, the Master of Science in Narrative Medicine, because, um, as the lore has it, uh, she knew she had to write a book about being an AIDS physician for the whole time. I mean, she started this work in the mid-90s, late 80s, mid-90s, when, when the disease was a death sentence and when everyone died. And so she did write a book. She came with part of a manuscript and she, she finished it uh, under the tutelage of Lynn Sharon Schwartz, who is with us this evening, who is a novelist and a memoirist, um, an eminent um, voice in fiction and nonfiction. And as I read this book, I understand why I wanted to be a doctor. And I understand the, what I thought was untellable parts of being a physician, caring for very ill patients. I hope that incoming medical students read this book kind of before they get here as an orientation to the complexity, to that which is required of the person in this role, of the pleasures, of the wisdom, of the sadness, and the sadness, and the sadness, and then of the ways in which we who give the care to patients simultaneously, if we're good at it, give the care to one another. So, um, is it you or me? <laughs> Sorry. It's the answer. <laughs> so, um, Susan will read, and you will hear seamlessly woven together the personal life, the thrills, 
of that life. There are babies being born in the course of the life, uh, in the course of the book. And then the um, reward of simply knowing how to do this, getting good at it, and, and donating it to others. It's really um, quite an honor and a, and a thrill to be on this side of the podium or to talk to you all tonight about my book, Voices in the Band, Doctor for Patients, and how the outlook on AIDS care changed from doom to hopeful. This is uh, a memoir um, of the AIDS epidemic as seen through our clinic, uh, which was the Center for Special Studies, which is the HIV care center at at New York Presbyterian Hospital, which is Cornell downtown. It's told through the stories of my patients, through my colleagues, and, and myself. So tonight, first I'm going to talk for a few minutes, just tell you a little bit about how the book came into being, um, and how it kind of, a little bit of the history of it. Am I talking louder? A little louder. A little louder. Maybe we'll point that. Right, as sorry. far as I can go. Thank okay, you. sorry. Good, thanks. Um, and then I'd like to read a little bit from the book from a couple of sections, and then I'd be happy to answer questions or talk about it in any way you'd like to. So I started working at the Center for Special Studies in 1992, and that was really at one of the times of the darkest times of, of the HIV epidemic when so many people, so many young people, were, were dying and we were losing so many, so many lives. Um, the Center for Special Studies was conceived as a multidisciplinary approach to patient care. So my colleagues were physicians and nurses and social workers. We had nutritionists. We had a full-time chaplain. Um, and in those days, we really had no effective treatment to offer our patients against the HIV, but we could offer really quite extraordinary care. Our patients at our clinic were not the somewhat stereotypical wealthy white gay man who had a summer house on Fire Island and was dying of AIDS. Our patients really came from some of the furthest margins of, of society. People whose lives were really complicated by things like poverty, lack of education, mental illness, substance use, violence, prison time, really, really very tough lives. And, and so these patients were among the sickest of the sick and the poorest of the poor. But every single one of them had their own unique character, their unique personality. And that, that, that came to us, even as they, some of them were so sick and some of them, many of them, too many of them died. They were generous. They were frustrating, they were noble, they were thoughtful, they were exasperating, infuriating, you name it. Um, and I wrote about them. I wanted to, to write about them. I wanted to write down some of these characters that I was taking care of and some of the um, situations I was in, some of the sad situations, some of the funny and some of the strange experiences that I had working with, with these patients. 
And when I started, it, I wasn't trying to do it to publish and didn't have a book in mind or in the early days. It was really just because I, I wanted to remember these people. I didn't want to forget them. I did other writing. I, I was uh, the um, I wrote for a journal called The AIDS Reader, and I wrote an article called The Clinical Challenge Series. I wrote it on a regular basis. And that was usually a, a case study of a, of a presentation of HIV and then a literature review. And that, that journal was targeted at primary care physicians out across the country, people who were maybe taking care of a handful of HIV patients and might not have the, the depth of experience and knowledge that those of us in urban, urban environments have. My book, Voices in the Band, is a memoir, and I realized that there are actually a lot of different kinds of memoirs. And mine looks at a certain period of time and a certain group of people who were really suffering and the people who were trying to take care of them. I, I, recently, <coughs> me, I recently heard a talk um, by a woman who had written her own memoir, and she was, was talking about sort of the process of writing memoir, and she talked about the lies that are told in writing memoirs. Um, she referred to, or she referred to them as lies. Um, she talked about um, um, emotional evasion, the lies of emotional evasion, that if there's something that's painful or difficult to write about, you might you know, fudge it a little bit in the writing of your memoir. She also talked about um, lies of the recreated self um, and lies of interpretation, how you might, one might, in writing, in writing a memoir, again, fudge things a little to not necessarily represent exactly what happened. And when I heard this talk, I just, I thought, how does that apply to me when, you know, um, I hadn't really thought of myself as, as lying, but I guess what I was really working for and working toward with this book was finding a voice that really could truly express my experiences and express how I felt and express as truly as I could uh, um, what happened to me and how I interacted with, with the people around me. And, and so that, I guess, my, instead of lies, I was trying to find, to find a voice. Voices in the Band is the story of, of the AIDS epidemic in, in the 1990s, so it was that really transformative period when we went from caring for patients for whom we had no effective treatment to really being able to treat them very effectively and being able to take care of them um, very successfully medically. But we went really from a time in the early 90s when AIDS was a death sentence to by the beginning of this century, um, it's really a chronic illness for those who are in care. I started actually writing the book uh, about 10 years ago um, with the encouragement of my boss at the time, a guy named John Jacobs, who's, who's in the book. I should say encouraged and supported, but emotionally, not financially. <laughs> um, I wrote the book for about two years, not every night, but fairly, fairly consistently. And after about uh, two years, I felt like I had half the book written. In the, in the outline that I'd created for myself. I had about 200 pages written. So I wanted someone to see it and, and look at it and give me a little bit of feedback. So a friend of a friend worked for a large publishing company and uh, she agreed to take a look at it. So I sent her a couple of chapters and she called me within about 10 days or two weeks. We had a pretty long conversation on the phone. 
And she said basically two things that I took away from that conversation. The first was, don't quit your day job because you're a terrible writer. <laughs> and the second thing was, why are you writing about these patients? Nobody cares about them. So that was pretty disheartening and uh, discouraging. And I put the book down and I didn't write anything more for more than two years. And then along came Rita Sharon back into my life with the narrative medicine program um, that we heard about. And I reconnected with Rita. And she really encouraged me to, to sign up and participate in the master's program. And once again, my boss offered encouragement and support no money. <laughs> I shouldn't dwell on that. But, uh, <laughs> master's program, it really can set you back. And, but, it, um, but I really had a lot of support to, to do the program. Um, and as I worked at the master's program, as I took the courses and, and sort of expanded my mind into what was, what was being taught there, I realized that that lady was wrong, that I certainly care about these patients, and you are all here because you care about these patients. And that their stories, stories matter, and their stories matter. And it really made me feel like this is a book. It has to be, I have to write this book. And with Rita's great advisorship and support and, and encouragement, we made the book my capstone project. So then I was super fortunate to work with two authors and two wonderful writing teachers. Nellie Herman helped me for a semester and then Lynn Sharon Schwartz helped me for two semesters as an incredibly patient, steady, gifted writing teacher, and I definitely could not have gotten the book done in that amount of time and at that level without, without their help, without Lynn's help. <laughs> Lynn was relentless about get rid of that passive voice. What the heck is this dangling modifier? You know, what kind of analogy is that? That doesn't make any sense at all. But she was never critical. She just she loved the characters that I had, had written down, and she just helped me bring them to life in a way that I'm so appreciative of how much she helped me. So I really wanted to write this book for three reasons. One, first and foremost, for the patients, to talk about them. And, I recently read a line that Rita had written, and I think it really applies to so many things in narrative medicine, but it particularly applies to my patients, because the universal is illuminated by the expression of the particular. So my pa patients had some very particular and profoundly particular aspects of them, but in caring for them and in writing about them, I think a lot of universal aspects were illuminated. And I also wanted to write about this time in medicine. This, this is a part of the history of our country, the AIDS epidemic. It was a very important and unique time in, in medicine. And then I also wanted to write about my colleagues and the, and the really incredible care that, that we were able to provide for patients in a time that was very difficult. Um, Abigail Zuger generously wrote a review of my book and she pointed out that even though now we can save lives with our medicine, in that prior time, we really could really give extraordinary care. So I'm going to read to you a couple of sections. Um, the first one is from, the first part is from a chapter uh, that takes place in 1994, and it's called Christmas. And I'm actually going to read sections of the chapter, so I'm going to, it, it'll, 
I might have a little pause in the, in the part. Ho, 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 that's what I say. He licked his finger and reached around to touch his finger to his behind. Oh, I am so hot. Then he giggled and stood up straight. About six foot six in his size 14 red spike heels, Darren had on fishnet stockings and a Santa's helper costume. The latter consisted of a white fur-trimmed tutu and a strapless red bodice. He spent a lot of time in the weight room, and the muscles in his shoulders bulged. He looked like a bodybuilder, trying to disguise himself as a Las Vegas showgirl, complete with a red and white fur-lined Santa cap. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas, he said in a very deep voice. The secretaries wanted to have their picture taken with him. Darren wasn't usually a cross-dresser, but he loved camping it up at the holidays. December at the Center for Special Studies meant the patient holiday party. This tradition began when the 24th floor first opened in 1991. Every patient received an invitation, and they came with their families. The big table in the conference room disappeared under all the food. In addition to turkeys, hams, bowls of potatoes, and salad, there were enormous piles of sandwiches, and cookies, chicken wings, meatballs, and little cocktail hot dogs. We served soft drinks in the hallway, and the corridor was lined up and down with chairs. The doctor's offices stayed off limits, but we left the doors open for the light. We encouraged the inpatients to come if they could. A nurse or family member escorted them upstairs to the party. Some could walk, some came in wheelchairs. A few of the patients looked like they were ready for the grave. This could be hard on the other guests, knowing that the ivy pole, the hospital gown, the gaunt pallor could one day be their own. I remember one Christmas, a particularly thin and haggard-looking man sat in a wheelchair in the waiting room, a piece of chocolate cake sagging on a paper plate in his lap. He couldn't eat it. He had a fierce, almost triumphant gleam in his eyes, totally happy to be at the Christmas party. By the look of things, it would be his last. We had a raffle in the first few years of the Christmas party. The hospital, neighborhood stores, and outside charities donated many, many gifts, and Stan or Gerald drew ticket numbers from a box and gave out everything from pen and pencil sets to stuffed animals and cologne. Practically everyone got a gift. After a time, it became clear that the patients expected a gift, and they expected a good one. Sometimes the patients wanted to give their gift back and get something better. Once, there was nearly a fistfight over who would get the magenta mule slippers with feathers on them. Grown men fighting over pink mule slippers. We stopped the raffle after that year. But we did continue to give patient gifts for their children. Stan came into the nurse's station while I was writing my notes in Sophia's chart. He looked tired. Three patients of his had died in the last week. He'd been very fond of one of them, a guy who used to talk about fishing all the time. I asked him how things were going. Fucking Deirdre G. She calls me this morning saying she's gonna kill herself. It's about the 10th time she's done this. Why doesn't she do it already and quit fucking bothering me? Then he gave an exasperated chuckle and groaned. I called Zoe and asked her if she could squeeze her in this morning. I had to laugh. Stan could sound so completely irreverent, but he was unfailingly compassionate and attentive to his patients. Deirdre G. took up a lot of Stan's time because she was so worried that she was dying of AIDS. 
Her T-cell count remained very high, entirely within the normal range. Unlike my anxious patient Stewart's condition, Deirdre's HIV had not progressed and she really had no medical, medical problems other than neuroses. I wish I could give her what she really needs, he said. I can't write a prescription for a different childhood or a negative HIV test. He looked long. Why is she calling this time? Oh, I don't know. Her boyfriend was out too late or her mother said something she didn't like. She knows we can't blow her off if she mentions suicide. You're too good to her, I said, shaking my head. You always listen to her, every time. I know, I know. By 4.30 that afternoon, I was standing behind a long row of steam tables, dishing out fried dumplings and rice in one of the big meeting rooms of, of the hospital cafeteria. My colleagues served up chicken wings and broccoli, macaroni and cheese and salad and little hot dogs and big fish and beans. On another table, heaps of sandwiches sat next to trays of cookies, patients and their partners, children and friends, all with plates piled with food, milled about, or sat at the many tables, each decorated with a red cloth and ribbons and a centerpiece. Christmas music and sometimes dance music played loudly. I looked over to see my enormously obese patient get up out of her wheelchair and start dancing. She had fantastic rhythm and her body gracefully swayed and twisted to the music. Celia's out of her chair, Dr. Barry yelled over to me above the noise. Looking fine, I heard one of the social workers say. It's a miracle, I said to Maggie, standing next to me. Celia wasn't crippled. She was just too fat to move about very easily, so the wheelchair got her where she needed to go, with the help of the home attendant who pushed her everywhere. Someone commented that the home attendant would need a wheelchair herself after pushing Celia around for a few months. Still, I smiled to see my patient on her feet, moving so beautifully. After the first two or three years, the Christmas party had gotten too big and too crowded for us to continue to have it in the clinic. With patients everywhere, food and drinks invariably spilled in the carpets and the couches. Some patients couldn't see us without asking for a quick visit or a prescription. It was considered bad form to go into your office and shut the door to take a break from the noise or the crowd. But after a couple of hours, we all started feeling like we desperately needed the party to be over. We loved hosting the event, but it needed a different venue. The hospital cafeteria did not seem like a warm and welcoming spot for our Christmas party. But we realized the improvement, much more space for everyone, much more elbow room for eating, talking, and dancing. One of our social workers, Anna, proved to be an excellent DJ, and patients and staff alike were grooving it up on the dance floor. Eventually, a karaoke machine became part of the Christmas party. Some of our patients have revealed wonderful voices over the years. Santa always came to the party, and the kids took turns sitting on his lap, telling him what they wanted for Christmas. Darren, in his Santa's helper outfit, liked to sit on Santa's lap, too. Our Santa worked at the local deli and sometimes smelled like he'd been dipping into the eggnog before coming to the party. But he proved himself a good sport. He didn't look entirely comfortable with Darren sitting on his lap, but he never said whether it was because Darren was wearing a tutu or because Darren weighed 210 pounds. Suddenly, the tempo of the music shifted, and there was a general cheer from the dancers. Several people jumped up from their seats to join in the Macarena, a line dance with syncopated moves performed in unison. I watched smiling as the patients and staff, as well as kids and assorted friends, performed this precise dance all together, struck by the range of enthusiasm. My patient Orlando danced with his head down, wearing cowboy boots, his hair combed back from his face and his shirt nicely pressed. He seemed utterly engrossed in his steps. 
Several of the secretaries danced together and whooped each time the routine called for the little jump at the turn. Some of the patients danced with exaggerated gestures and great swinging of the hips and arms. Others seemed restrained, almost solemn, going through the movements deliberately, as if participating in a religious ritual. Out of the blue, I thought of Yolanda, my patient with the horrible case of genital herpes. She'd been hospitalized several times this year and died not long ago from overwhelming, untreatable infection. Early in her last long hospital stay, before she'd become comatose, she'd been able to sit up in a chair for brief periods. The nurse had brought her to the solarium one afternoon where I went to find her on my rounds. Another patient, a woman in her 40s, sat in the bright room with her three visiting children. Yolanda looked on as the kids hummed the music to the Macarena and showed their mother how well they could do the dance. Seeing me, Yolanda asked me to take her back to her room and then didn't speak as I pushed her wheelchair down the hall. Yolanda never talked very much, and her silence didn't bother me. When we got back to her room, though, she said, I like seeing those little kids do that dance. They seem so free. But then I remembered that I can't do that dance now. I can't even stand up. She wouldn't say any more to me about it. The nurses told me that she wouldn't go back to the solarium after that. Here I was watching the Macarena again. One of the people joining the dance was Deirdre G, Stan's patient who had called earlier to say she was going to kill herself. Zoe Prince stood near me and I asked her if she had met with Deirdre earlier. Yeah, she almost hollered above the music and the general din. Stan asked me to see her and she came in after lunch. Looks like you cured her. Oh, you know, Deirdre, everything is such a huge trauma. She was at some mall in Staten Island yesterday and she felt like some lady was looking at her in a funny way. She was convinced this woman knew that she had HIV. It totally freaked her out. Oh, poor Deirdre, she's so tough of all people. I know, she's totally fine. Totally. Stan said she was something like 600 T-cells. So what did you say to her? Well, Stan saw her for a few minutes before I did, and I think that settled her down. I just wanted to make sure that her suicidal talk didn't need more intervention. It never does with her, but I always just like to check. So she's not killing herself today? I invited her to the Christmas party instead. At first, she didn't want to come. It's good you've convinced her. Look at her, grooving it up. Stan walked by us just then. We commented that Deirdre looked pretty great out there on the dance floor. Stan held out both hands as if he were weighing an object in each one. Hmm, he said. Kill myself or do the Macarena. What a hard decision. <laughs> the three of us laughed at how ridiculous that sounded. But we laughed in relief, too, that Deirdre could be out there dancing and we could joke about her dramatics. A patient as medically well as Deirdre frustrated us when so many others needed our care. She might get sick at some point, but no one could say when it would happen. One aspect of suffering for Deirdre meant living with that uncertainty. Other patients out on the dance floor moved about like living ghosts, swaying to the music on emaciated limbs, faces lined with the creases of the very ill. I could pick out two or three who would not attend next year's party. Stan's patient sitting in his wheelchair, pale as a glass of milk, bony hands and blue veins. My patient, Marta, nodding her head to the music with two of her children sitting close by. Her sunken eyes had purple circles around them. Of course, who could know if any one person would survive or not? But AIDS never seemed to let up, despite the youth of the patients and despite the offerings of CSS and our big hospital. Too many of those people on the dance floor would not see another Christmas. 
I shook my head against the feeling of helplessness that crept too close. We needed medicine, but sometimes dancing was all we could offer. So I'm going to read another, another section here. This, um, this next piece part is um, a little shorter. It's from um, a chapter from 1995, Decisions and Revisions. <clears throat> Stan sat at the nurse's station writing notes. Good morning, Dr. Singular, he said, looking up. He was referring to my slightly demented patient, William, who had called me Dr. Balls just yesterday. When I corrected William by telling him it's singular, he promptly called me Dr. Singular. <laughs> Don't worry, he called me Dr. Balls again this morning. Stan chuckled and went back to his writing. I pulled out Luz's chart and sat down next to him to read the notes from the admission. Maureen, one of the nurses, came in. Oh my God, she said to Stan. I can't believe that. Stan looked up at her and laughed. What happened, I asked. Georgina's eye, said Maureen. Georgina P., said Stan. She's had a glass eye for years from some trauma when she was young. Now, though, she's lost so much weight that the eye doesn't fit very well. It falls out. I was talking to her, and she sneezed, and her eye popped out and landed on the floor, added Maureen. Oh, my God. It rolled under the radiator. She told me to rinse it off in the sink and give it back to her, and she just popped it right back in. Stan leaned back in his chair, smiling and shaking his head as he listened to Maureen tell this story. Maureen gave another chuckle and picked up her medication book. I wonder how many more times that's going to happen today, she said, walking out of the nurse's station and heading down the hall. I looked at Stan. He looked back at me and shook his head again. Fucking A, he said. Then he returned to writing his notes, and I returned to Luz's chart. After reading the residence notes, I wrote my own and then went down the hall to see my next patient. I knocked on the door, and Marco's mother said, come in. The window in the room looked out over an interior courtyard. Most of the room was in shadow, but for a dim light over, over the empty hospital bed. Marco's mother sat in the half-lit space near the window. Hello, Mrs. Prowell. Hello, Dr. Ball. She always greeted me in a way that seemed quite formal, but over the last few weeks, I had come to know her as warm and articulate. Where's Marco? He's gone to have an x-ray. Has he been gone a long time? Not that long, maybe 20 minutes. You're sitting here in the dark. Yes, I'm waiting for him to come back. How is he today? I went closer and sat on the ledge of the window facing her. He's about the same, very weak. Very weak. I sat looking at her in the, gla in the gloomy room. The vaguely foul odor of disinfectant over feces wafted about us. There had been times when this room defied the strongest stomach because of the smell. Today wasn't bad. Cryptosporidium, the infection in Marcus colon, caused a constant watery diarrhea. Day and night, it had slowly sapped all his strength, all his fat, all his muscle mass. No known effective cure existed for cryptosporidium, and it seemed that nothing we gave him helped the diarrhea. Marco's body epitomized the expression skin and bones. On the bedside table stood a photograph of Marco and his mother in another time and place. They smiled together, looking at the camera while palm trees waved in the background. The tall, handsome man in the photograph had brown eyes and broad, sh broad shoulders. 
and looked nothing like the Marco I saw suffering and wasting away each day in this miserable hospital bed. Soon we'd be deciding whether Marco should go home in his mother's care or to a nursing home. Although I'd discussed the options with both of them a couple of times, they were not considering anything other than Marco going home with his mother. I wanted to offer an alternative. Having him at home was going to be a tremendous strain on them both. We could help by setting up nursing services and a home attendant for support with changing beds and doing laundry. But Marco needed constant care, and he and I both worried about how this would affect his mother. I looked at Marco's empty bed with its clean sheets stretched tightly across and a knitted blue blanket from home folded at the foot. Mrs. Prava, how are you doing? I'm all right, she said. Are you getting enough rest? I get home late, but I guess I do, yes. <clears throat> Marco told, me, told you to stop sleeping here, didn't he? Marco is worried about me. She gave a little chuckle looking at the floor. Marco, worrying about his mama. I waited for her to say more. She lifted her head and looked right at me. He has the AIDS, doesn't he? Her question surprised me. I, I had assumed that she knew. But in fact, I had never actually spoken to her about it. The diarrhea came from an infection that we spoke of very freely. But AIDS had opened the door for that infection. We had never overtly discussed the underlying cause. Too many assumptions. I felt my face turn red. Mrs. Prava, I... I have known for a long time. You don't need to worry about telling me. Marco did not want me to worry. He wants to protect me. She was looking past me, talking more to herself. I have known for a long time that Marco has the AIDS. He might even think now that I don't know. We don't talk about it anymore. We are just trying to take care of him, to get him to eat a little bit. The diarrhea, it is so strong. Before, when he was better, he had a friend who came to our house a lot. Beautiful young man, so handsome and so funny. Always sweet to me and a good friend for Marco. And then he was not coming to our house so much. And when he came, I asked Marco, what is wrong with Eric? He is so thin and his pants are falling down from his hips. Marco said he didn't know. And then Eric came one last time and he was coughing and sweating. And he cried when he said goodbye. I said to Marco, this boy has the AIDS and he is dying. And Marco said, no, mommy, he is just sick. He's okay, he'll get better, don't worry. But I knew that that boy was sick with the AIDS. And then Marco started to not eat well, and he was swimming in his shirts and wearing his belt four, four holes tighter. I have known for a long time. I'm his mother, and I will take care of him. She wasn't looking at me, and her voice quavered a little as she talked, holding a crumpled tissue in her hand. A thin gold wedding band looked tight on her finger, and I imagined the young girl she must have been when it was first placed there. Now she was a bit heavyset. She wore glasses with metal frames and a simple flowered dress and tan shoes with low heels. The dark wool coat that she'd taken off and folded on the back of the chair didn't look warm enough. She brushed at something on her lap and balled the tissue into her fist. She didn't cry. Mrs. Prava, I think that Marco worries about you nearly as much as you worry about him. She gave a little shake of her head, saying, Marco. I know we've been over this, and I think everyone wants Marco to be able to come home and stay. It's really the only place for him. I know you're right, I continued, but there is so much care that he needs. I worry about both of you. I can't send him to a nursing home. I know, I know you can. We're going to try to make this work. I just, well, 
I just feel a bit worried that it will be too hard. I knew that I could bulldoze this situation and send Marco to a nursing home. He might get better professional care there. <clears throat> but really, Marco needed his mother and the love she brought him. She'd end up practically living at the nursing home anyway. I thought again about listening to the distant vibration of the railroad tracks. The only power I had in this situation was to help Marco die peacefully in his home with his mother near him. Dr. Ball, you are very kind. Mrs. Prava, what you are doing for Marco is so important and so wonderful. Many patients here are alone. Marco is lucky. She hesitated for a moment. No, Marco is not lucky. God, had I really said that? Marco is lucky? Shitting on himself within minutes of having a last soiled diaper changed? Wrapped by cramps and smelling either of feces or that horrible peppermint air freshener that sits like glue in the air? Unable to walk or dress or laugh or read or even have a conversation? Lucky? I'm sorry, I said the wrong thing. What I want to say is that Marco has something that so many people with this illness lack. He is someone who loves him. He's here in a great hospital, and I don't think that he'd get better care anywhere else. But the most important thing is your love and your presence. That's what I meant to say. It's all right. I know what you meant. I wish there was more that we could do to help. <coughs> it will be good to go home. I got up and reached out to touch her hand. She looked down at her lap. My beeper went off, and I fumbled with it to make it stop. Then I put my hand on Mrs. Prava's shoulder. I'll see you later, I said, and went to the door. Wow. Thank you very much. I'm very attentive. Um, so, I know I talked a little bit in the beginning, but if there's any questions about the book or about AIDS or about what what went into writing voices in the band, I'd be happy, happy to answer them. Hi. Hello, Marsha. That was wonderful, thank you. So, um, this seems an inappropriate question after hearing Marco's story, um, but I've read most of the book, and um, I feel like the, um, the humor in the book really comes forth not only in the writing but more so in the telling. Mm. And um, and I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that humor that's kind of woven through <coughs> sometimes in very obvious scenes yeah. as kind of pain yeah. coming out of the bathroom, but sometimes very <laughs> gently yeah. just um, in the relationship with your colleagues and yeah. with your but I, you know, for me, working with in this kind of work, in this kind of job, that you could perhaps imagine, or maybe not even imagine, how terrible it was at times, and how intensely sad and awful. Um, but this, the fact that I worked with a team of people who were also very dedicated, very smart, very committed group of people, and laughter saved us. I mean, we things happened every day that you could that were beyond imagination, and some of them were just really funny. I mean, our, our patients, as I said, were a huge array of characters, and um, I think that, that our ability to um, 
enjoy the diversity and the and the specialness of that was 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 really life saving for all of us as the providers. Um, and and also, you know, there were these kind of acutely very funny things that happened, like like Georgina's eye falling out. I mean, it just it was just you can't make that up. And um, or Hank, you know, wobbling out of the bathroom with nothing on except some toilet paper wrapped around his penis. Just, you know, things like that would happen and you just like want to write them down and, and hopefully, I, I think, um, I'm glad that you, that you felt that these scenes were funny because I, I worry that I'm not that great as a comic writer, but I, um, I, hope, that, I hope that really does come through. So thank you for making that comment. Because the patients, 
Um, there's, I think there's two sides of it really, because our clinic, also the, the structure and the function of our clinic has changed, has become much less autonomous as we are under the umbrella of the ambulatory care network. So we have to fill out a lot of the forms and go to a lot of the meetings for that. And so that's taken away a little bit. And we also got much, much bigger, because as AIDS care moved to the outpatient setting from the inpatient setting, um, we needed to expand in order to maintain having patients in the hospital. So we, instead of three full-time doctors, now we're 10 full-time doctors. And instead of four or five social workers, now we have, I don't know, 18 or so. So our staff is much bigger. So there's that aspect. And then for the patients themselves, I think that's also a, um, a factor, is there's, people aren't as, as, um, as desperately ill anymore in the same way they, they were. It's no longer a death sense, and so patients like Deirdre, who you know, get the diagnosis and think you know, anything that happens to them, they're gonna, be, they're gonna die, which was, was so prevalent then early. So, so patients are less um, urgent about, about their illness, and that's a, it's, it's a problem a little bit. I mean, I'm very happy that patients are doing so well, of course. But when patients don't feel an urgency about it, they may skip their medicines or may, you know, take the weekend off and not take their pills. And that's, that's a problem, you know, people need to take their medicine. Okay. This is sort of the prior question to Barbara's, which is, I mean, I, I feel that you've partially answered it already, which is really what, how do you understand the collegiality and the connectedness and the spirit of the group how do you how do you explain it um, amongst your colleagues? Well, I mean, again, it's it's evolved over these years, and I think we all felt like that that time that I wrote about was a fairly unique and, and special time for us all. And um, and it, for example, we had a support group that met uh, twice a twice a month that I write about in the book, and, and that was. was crucial for, for um, all of us. It wasn't just for doctors. Any, 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 any of the staff could come, even the secretary. You know, anybody could come who, who was, was working there. And that was really very helpful for all of us to, um, another way to kind of dis dissipate that intense sadness. And so the collegiality, I think, is still very present because we are still a multidisciplinary team. Um, and I think we really do offer some uh, something very special and, and, and unique in the care that we provide. And I think we're all very proud of that still. But there's definitely less um, there's definitely less intensity of the of the of the um, colleague to colleague relationships. I mean, some of my old, my colleagues have been there for 20 years along with me. We obviously know each other really well. But there's you know a lot of new people that have come in over the years, so I'm less close to to a lot of them. I don't know if all of you know Ali Fine. Oliver Fine was the director of the beginning of what's now the AIM practice, the Associates in Internal Medicine, and was in the early 80s the champion of primary care and general medicine at this institution. Uh, he's now at Cornell, but his influence um, is absolutely in every room down there mm -hmm. and in every one of 
us caregivers. Well, and Ali's personally responsible for me coming to coming to Columbia because yeah. I finished residency and wanted to do an MPH, and I wanted to figure out how to do that and work. And Ali hired me to work at AIM and do my MPH. Yeah. And um, so, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you for those comments. I, I wanted to ask, in terms of getting the meaningful things uh, in my practice, uh, one of them has been invitations by family to uh, come to the funerals mm -hmm. uh, of patients who have died. Yeah. I can't imagine how you could do that, frankly, uh, in the setting that you're in. And the second thing that's been truly transformative is when I've made home visits. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering how much that is at all in this home, uh, what your practice uh, involved. You know, over the years, there are many funerals, um, to, uh, way, 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 way too many to go to or to count. Um, but definitely, we went to some. And um, some of them were also quite eye-opening experiences, because they were in places that I probably would never have gone in the city and and, um, and experiences that were very unique. House calls were definitely not a expected or anticipated part of, the, of our practice. I did, over the years, I think, make two house calls. I can remember one young man who we had sent home, and he had a small son, a son who was quite small, and he lived very near the hospital, and his wife was taking care of him. Um, and he was bedbound at home and with this little boy and and, and, the, and the mother. And I went to visit him at, at his house. And that was, yeah, it was a very moving experience. But it was it was very rare that we would go to people's homes. Yeah. I'm Dick Pearson. Uh, I graduated 60 years ago in Ines. And uh, I, there is much resonance in all the things that you've said, but particularly you have described the transition from hopeless to hopeful yeah. to curative. And that transition, in the case of AIDS, what a fantastic example. It didn't happen in six weeks, like with Ebola in two years. It happened in about eight or nine years. And I was very much involved between 1981 and 1988 in the years in which there weren't no cure. There was just hope. But then some things came along that we were involved in, and it went from hope to maybe to possibly to definitely. Yeah. And now, then what's that got to do? Well, we are sitting in a place where doctors and nurses and social workers and dentists and psychologists and lots of other people. It used to be just doctors, but it ain't just doctors anymore. It's all those other people who are clustering around and making it possible for a relatively small number of people. There are 900,000 doctors in this country, but there are 8 million nurses in this country, approximately, and uh, all these other people. And the capacity to bring them into the same story, and that is why what you are doing here tonight is precious because we are not just a medical school, we are a school for health sciences and public health and other things, and the capacity for people to come to this room and hear in ways which appeal to the emotions and the poetry, and it's remarkable. Look at Keats and Shelley and Chekhov and quite a few others who are, who are poets, 
who are physicians before they became poets. They were not always called physicians, they were not called doctors. But at any rate, the collinearity between people with medical training and people who cared about other people is recognizable in a medical school a heck of a lot better than it is if you're just out in the veteran administration somewhere else. But that, that Rita has produced here, has brought to life here things which I guess other people thought about before, which is how can we help our medical students, not our nurses, not our psychologists, and dentists, and all those other people who are very much members of the team, and we can do it a hell of a lot better when we have people like you who have lived through it and have put into words mm -hmm. and put into print something which we can remember. Mm -hmm. And I can't quite remember what, who it was that said that then, but there's a book that somebody's written and I can go look it up. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. say that just in the act of, of this of writing about patients, whether it's a good writer or a bad writer, but I think, um, and maybe that's why the narrative medicine program resonates so much with me, is that act of writing and putting it down on paper and, and sort of letting it flow out, I think that uh, creates a story. You can you can tell someone the story, but when you write it down, it also then it's then it's there, and you can go back to it. it. It's interesting. Part for me, parts of the book now, and I read them. My memory of them is because they're here in the book. They're they're less like less a memory in my head now. They're a memory because they're they're written down. Um, so there's that aspect of writing that helps helps preserve those memories. I would also say that. Um, in recognizing that I was writing a book and, and, and participating in the narrative medicine program and, and moving my, my life in this direction, that it's helped me appreciate people a little bit more and be a better listener. And um, I, you know, doing this work for years on end, there's definitely days when it's like, you know, when is it going to be five o'clock? I'd like to go home. But um, I think this aspect of of, um, of education, of learning, and of being able to write has helped me um, be more patient, be more thoughtful, um, and hopefully, hopefully, more attentive than I might have otherwise been. Mm. And Susan is too modest to say, but she has been teaching others now at Cornell for years in writing, in reading, in creativity uh, to the medical students, to the nursing students, to the physicians. So she has been bringing to others what 
She learned from being a writer. Yeah, I didn't know I was going to have another job on top of, <laughs> on top of my other job. We have time for one or two more. I just had a question about the process of writing your book. Were you keeping extensive journals during your work in that? No, really did not. you just look back in your memory as, and try to remember all the details? Uh, you know, I had a few things written down, as I, as I mentioned, not, but really not any study journal at all. And um, when I really did start thinking that I was going to make it a book in, in 2004, as I mentioned, I think I'd gone out to dinner with John and, and Stan one, and my colleagues, and we just were kind of schmoozing and reminding each other of some funny things and some other stories. So that I re then I remembered a couple of the other things, but no, I didn't really have any didn't really have any notes. Um, but I just there were certain there's there's several different patients that are followed through the book. It's not an unlimited supply, but there are several different story arcs of patients that are that are followed. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks.